Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget the free TuneIn app. We're there, too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog on a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There is nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages, and their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. This week we flash back to another best of with five more unforgettable stories from five unforgettable personalities. And we begin with the cap man, David Kaplan, who never met a story he didn't like to tell. Well, this one occurred in 1997 and turned what was the worst start in Chicago Cubs history into a rather celebrated one. So if the Cubs, like, you know me, I'm a diehard Cub fan. I can be. Oh, I, that, I think that, like, that comes with the territory, yeah. Yeah, and people will be like, well, aren't you a journalist? Come on, man. It, I'm an entertainer. That's what my job is. Yes, I, I've broken stories like you have, and some of that requires journalistic background, integrity, whatever you want to call it, but I only like authentic people. I loved Harry Carey because Harry was authentic. He was himself and he didn't give a flying rip what you thought of him. And so now 97 starts and the Cubs had come off like in 95, they got eliminated from the wild card right at the end. 96, they didn't finish strong. Here comes 97. And I am working at the station that's carrying the games. So I'm doing the pre and the post game. I'm around Ronnie Santo and I'm excited. And now they start 0 
and six. And my program director, Mary June Rose, says to me, boy, what are, what are, are the Cubs going to ever win a game? I said, I don't know. She goes, you should do something, you know, to get people fired up. I said, I got a great idea. I'm going to take the WGN fan van. I'm going to drive it to Wrigley. I'm going to park it outside the ballpark, and I am going to live in it till they win a game. She's like, you're going to what? I said, yeah, Waddle and I, because he's my partner at the time, Tom Waddle. And I come running into the sports office. I said, Tommy, you're not going to believe what we're going to do. What? We're getting in the van, and we're going to drive to Wrigley right now, and we're sleeping in the van till the Cubs win a game. His response, classic Tom, he goes, you're doing what? I said, no, 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 we're doing. He's like, go F yourself. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm doing it. So my intern, Steve Buckman, the guy who called me when Jack Brickhouse had passed away, Steve Buckman goes, I'll go with you. So we drive up there. Well, I can't park it on Clark Street. I can't park it on the grounds at Wrigley. So the owner of the McDonald's hears about it on WGN, calls me, and says, you can park it in my lot. Done. So they're going to win tomorrow. They're playing Colorado. They're going to beat Colorado, and it's over. It's a one-night stunt. They lose. Now McDonough and Jay Blanco, want to throw out the first pitch? Sure. Throw out the first pitch. I'm getting taunted by, you know, people in the media. And they're like, dude, this team's horrible. I don't know when you're going home. So now here comes day two. They lose to Colorado again. They're 0-8. Now I'm thinking, when the hell am I going to get out of here? The Cubs leave to go to New York. They are still winless. And I'll never forget when they were leaving. I'm in the van. There's a knock. I'm like, yeah, coming. Hold on. I open up the door to the van. It's Jim Riggleman. He's the manager of the team. I don't know Jim Riggleman hardly at all, other than a couple interviews. He's like, hey, man, I don't know when you're getting out of here. We're horrible. Like, <laughs> he actually told you that. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, God. Now there are drunks at the bar that are coming, and they're rocking the van in the middle of the night. So the radio station hires security to guard me out there. Now they lose again. So now the Tom Snyder show, remember the late Tom Snyder? Sure, of course I do. The late, late show. He calls, hey, if they lose tomorrow, we want you on the show. Well, I, 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 I'm not leaving. I can't leave. No, no, no. We're sending a satellite truck. We're going to do part of our show from the parking lot at McDonald's. So sure enough, they lose. And they set it up with Magnum's Restaurant. Uh, their marketing guy, John McCartney, says, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have steak and lobster delivered to you while you're on the air. And he has this gorgeous girl who's a model in uh, those really high white boots and a short dress. And she's delivering and serving me filet and lobster. I'm sitting on a recliner that J the, the um, John M. Smith, or do you say Smythe, or Walter E. Smith? I think it was Walter E. Smith, delivered a recliner and an Oriental rug that's set up in the parking lot at the McDonald's. Apt Electronics sets up a TV and they wire it into one of the stoplights. And I've got TV, I've got a chair with an Oriental rug, and I got a beautiful girl serving me steak and lobster on national TV. Now I got to interrupt you for a minute because I'm thinking, of course, the the, the logical thought here is, um, where do you go to the bathroom and do you shower? So a friend of mine who I mentioned earlier, Dave Abrams, 
He owns one of the rooftops, 3627 North Sheffield. He tosses me a key. He goes, what are the ground rules here? I can't leave the area around the ballpark. He's like, my rooftop overlooks right field. So he lets me use the shower in the building. So I showered like three times a day. I had nothing to do. And I would walk around the park to get exercise. And then the owner of the McDonald's, he said, hey, we're open 24-7. If you'll agree to come in when I have a TV station coming and cook breakfast for the customers, I'll let you eat whatever you want. Deal. So I would go in there and just grab a double cheeseburger. Oh, you guys want pancakes? I got you. And I'd pour it out and flip the pancakes. And I was there. So on Friday, they lose again. Saturday, I think it was, they get rained out. Sunday, they have a double header. George, they lose game one of the double header. They're 0-14. 0-14, and I'm still there. And then the next game, eighth inning, Cubs have like a 4-2 to two lead. Bottom of the eighth, the Mets get three. They're gonna, and they're off on Monday. So I'm there at least two more nights. Lord had mercy on me. The Cubs come back in the ninth, get two runs, hold them, win, and I get to go home. And there must have been 500 people in the parking lot taunting me. They're going to blow it again. You're absolutely not getting out of here. And they got the save, and I got to go home. Greeny, if you're a sports fan, or even if you're not, you likely know that translates into Mike Greenberg, the highly successful host at ESPN. Greeny's career began in Chicago and did so with a certain host of a certain podcast playing a significant role. Well, I'll tell you a story you may not remember, and we'll see. But my very, very, very first day in this industry, in the broadcasting business, I had just graduated from Northwestern, and through a connection of my father's, I got a job working one day a week at the old WMAQ News Radio, which was on 670 on the AM dial at that time, where the score has subsequently moved to. And the, we used to work out of the merchandise mart. Mm-hmm. And my literally my very first day, I came in to just sort of observe. I was working one day a week, and the rest of the week I was working in a restaurant. But my very first day when I came in to observe what was going on and what my responsibilities would be and all the rest of that, my job was basically to just help out the sports anchor of the day, however I might be able to be of assistance. And the idea was that particularly on Saturdays, this was in the fall, on Saturdays I would keep track of all the college football scores and everything else. But my very first day, the sports anchor of the day, was George Offman. (laughs) And you let me come into the studio with you. I still remember it. We would sit in this newsroom, and you'd have to walk down a little hallway to get into the studio where you would go on the air. And I said to you, is it okay if I come with you? And you said, yes, I don't mind an audience. And I walked (laughs) with you down the little hallway, and I sat in the room quietly, and the news anchor threw it to you with the sports. And you did two minutes, two and a half minutes, whatever it was. And I was just sitting there watching, and I remember thinking to myself, like, that's my dream. If I could just get that job, if I could just be the person who does that, who comes on twice an hour and gives you the sports update, like, what a great life that would be. And and that was my... That was really the beginning of it for me. That was my very first day. I don't think I got paid that day because I think I was just observing. Um, so I didn't start getting paid my six fifty an hour until I came in 
to start actually assisting. But that was my very first day in any meaningful way in the industry. This would have been late August of 1989. And you were the anchor and you were very nice to me then. And you were subsequently very nice to me for the remainder of the seven years that I continued working in Chicago and beyond. When we had to go from wherever we were, the newsroom, to the studio, you had to call an Uber. There were no Ubers back then. But it was a long trip. It was a harrowing trip. It's like you looked at the clock, and suddenly it's like, I'm on the air in a minute. Jeez, you got to run to get there. Uh, it, and, and, and it was such a great – those were such great days for me. I mean, if there's one thing I think I've done really well in my professional life is that I think I have – I have done a good job of really observing, like in my, in my young life, I wanted to be an actor. And my problem is I can't act, I can't sing, and I can't dance. I'm terrible at all of those things. And, and so I was never going to be an actor, but I wanted to be. And one of the skills that an actor has is observing. And I think I've always done a good job of observing successful people, people that I'm around, and learning about what makes them successful. And so in those days... At WMAQ, it was you, and it was Tom Green, and Ron Gleason, mm -hmm. and Steve Olden, and I learned a lot from just watching you guys and how you did it. You all had kind of your own different styles, and um, and I learned a lot from that, and, and it was from that job that I ultimately got a job at The Score, where, where you and I subsequently went in 1992, I guess it was, um, and um, and that obviously was a big thing for me. Um, and then we started learning. I started learning from the people over there. But I, I definitely started learning how to do this. My first education in how to do sports, particularly on the radio, was from you and the other guys at WMAQ, and it was invaluable. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballpark, Sox and Cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts.
Tell Me a Story I Don't Know isn't just about humorous or historic recollections. It's also about the human soul and how it endures through the most difficult times. Such was the case with Chuck Swirsky, the longtime voice of the Chicago Bulls, who managed to turn a traumatic experience into a positive outcome. Well, George, I'm going to tell you a story because a lot of people assume in our industry in sports, because it is a small fraternity, that we grew up in a very sports-oriented atmosphere, the environment where, hey, my dad played high school ball, my sisters played volleyball or basketball or track and field, or I had a great uncle that was a double-A ball player for the St. Louis Cardinals. And George, I'm going to tell you a story that none of that happened in my household, the way I grew up. My father was a naval officer, had zero interest in sports, zero. He was a man of great character, integrity, um, was a career naval officer, uh, was on the base quite a bit, loved to work on cars, loved carpentry. But really, uh, the only time we played ball in the backyard with a baseball and a glove, very seldom. And he passed away when I was in the sixth grade. And I'm going to tell you a story about that. My mom, school teacher, third grade school teacher, elementary school teacher, sometimes a high school school teacher, zero interest in sports. And I'm going to, you know, wrap this up before we move on. So it is May of my sixth grade school year, one month away from leaving elementary school to go into junior high school in Bellevue, Washington. I come home on a Wednesday from school. My dad is there and he says, Charlie, people refer to me as Charlie. I was never called Chuck until college. They said, Charlie, why don't we go to a ball game tonight? And I was stunned. I said, what dad? And he goes, we're going to a ball game. Now, Seattle at that time did not have a major league team. The pilots came in 69, but this was 1966. And the Seattle Angels, a AAA ball club of then the California Angels, and they played at Six Stadium in Seattle. So my dad takes me to a ball game against Salt Lake City. And at that time, Salt Lake City was the AAA affiliate of the Chicago Cubs. And so we're at the ballpark, Sixth Stadium, on a Wednesday night, watching the Seattle Angels against those Salt Lake City Bees. And we leave about the sixth or seventh inning because I had school the next day. So we go to the ball game. I come home from school. 24 hours later, I am pulled out of class, pulled out of class at lunchtime, my school teacher, Mr. Filler, calls me out in the hallway and says, quote, Charlie, I regret to inform you, your father died this morning. Mm. I said, what? He goes, your father has passed away. I fainted. Next thing I know, I'm in the house. I don't know how I got from point A to point B because it, it was dark. It, my, my brain was completely dark. And there is my mom weeping, my two sisters around her, my neighbors are there, the priest is there, and it was like, wow. And I think about that story, George, because here 
my father, who is not a sports fan, completely out of the blue, took me to a baseball game just before his death. And I think about that meaning and what it means. And I'm still at times trying to figure it out, you know, here nearly 60 years later. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but all I can tell you is that that is a story that is in my heart forever. You know, it, it's a sad story, but it's an inspiring story as well. Yeah, it is. Because you know what? Um, my parents, and the way I try to raise my children, even to this day, they're adults now, is that he always put his children ahead of himself. And, you know, one thing I've tried to plant the seed with a lot of people in our industry is that from generation to generation, the greatest impact you can have on a person is to give of yourself and to give of your heart. And like my first mentor in this business, Vince Bagley, just passed away at the age of 93. I met him when I was 11 years old after my father died. My uncle, who was in Baltimore, knew the Bagley family. Vince was like the dean of sports in Baltimore. He was sports director at WBAL-TV. And I stayed with Vince and his wife, Barbara, and their six kids every summer. And I would go to the station and literally right next to his desk, do everything that he asked me to do, whether it was put slides at that time in a category by team so he could put them up where you would see a ball player over his shoulder when he was doing the sports news or running and, you know, ripping the AP and UPI newswire, all those things, George. And so mentorship is extremely important. He was our very first guest in a compelling one of that. Michael Wilbon waxed nostalgia about growing up on the South Side, a career at the Washington Post, and how a meeting turned into one of the most popular and successful sports shows on television. Mark Shapiro, who was doing um, Sports Century in 1990, about the same time, by the way, that I'm thinking about coming home, I'm already on this panel. And the panel had, I don't know how many people were on the panel, but they were entrusted to select the 100 greatest athletes of the 20th century. And we're doing this in 1997, 8-ish, because the list is going to be announced at the end of 1999. And I was one of them. Tony Kornheiser was, Tony Kornheiser was one of them as well. Um, and we would sit in our offices, which were about, the doors were about seven feet apart. And we would scream and holler at each other about, this list, among other things, we did this every day. And Mark Shapiro, a young ESPN executive at the time, um, would, and, and he was the executive producer of, you know, Sports Century. It was his baby, his project. And it was a very important project because you got all those biographies. I think a half an hour for some people, but as you got toward the top of the pyramid, I think it was an hour for each person. And Mark would come to Washington and sit and listen to Tony and me screaming at each other across the hallway. And he said, one day I'm going to put this, I'm going to become somebody at ESPN. And if I do, I'm putting you two on television doing this. <laughs> and I remember Tony just said to him, that's nice. Can you give me another cup of coffee, please? Because he, I mean, Mark was young. He was, I mean, he was in his, I mean, so 1998, I was 39. Mark was barely 30. And he said, if I ever become anybody, I'm putting this on television. Fast forward to 2000, 
one summer of, and I get a call in LA, I'm covering the Lakers and whoever the Lakers are playing in the finals in 2001. And it's Mark Shapiro. And he says, Hey, I, I got to have dinner with you tomorrow night. And I said, Mark, I'm in LA. And he goes, I know where you are. I'm reading the newspaper. I know exactly where you are. We got to have dinner tomorrow night. I'm like, why? And he said, I, I, we'll have dinner. I'll tell you. So he flies out to LA. We have dinner at the Ivy, uh, you know, in Beverly Hills. And he says, um, I told you, I promised you guys, if I ever became someone of stature at the network, I was going to put you on television. Well, tomorrow I'm being named whatever the title is. Call it president of programming. That wasn't the name of the title. But whatever the, whatever the title was, it was essentially that. And he said, my first thing is I want to put you and Tony on a, on a show. And I said, that's your first act in this new position? Your second act is you're going to get your ass fired. <laughs> that's what ought to happen. And he said, no, I'm going to do this. And if you two guys say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to put somebody else on. But if this show is going to happen, it's going to be commenting on the news. And Tony and I said to Mark, you know, we don't want to be in something like Crossfire, which was on CNN, where two people pick a position or they're assigned a position and they just fight it out. We don't want that. Yeah. We wanted it to be more like Hello Chicago Connection, Siskel and Ebert, where people sat and talked and reviewed and opined and commented and criticized. Yes, criticized. Um, there were no hot takes yet because that stupid phrase hadn't been invented, thank God. <laughs> but I called Tony after this meeting. The meeting went for four hours from 8 till midnight Pacific time. So by the time I gathered myself and sat in the car and tried to understand what I had just been a part of in a conversation, it was 1 a.m. local time in L.A. It was 4 a.m. in the east, and I knew Tony would get up to walk his dog at 4 a.m. So I called him and I said, you need to listen. You need to not say a word for 10 minutes. I'm going to talk. I'm going to tell you why our lives are going to change. And then we can free for all. And that's what happened. I, I talked to him from 4 until 4.15 in the morning, Eastern time. And I just said, our lives are going to be different forever. And they, they obviously they are. They have been. Um, so, you know, we can say we didn't see it coming. But maybe we saw it a little you know, we thought it could work. We, we, George, we knew we could do what was being asked of us. It didn't mean, A, we were going to be good at it, but I, we thought we were going to be good at it. And it didn't mean that people would give a damn. I mean, just because you're good at something doesn't mean people care. You know, um, we know that with basically 100% of the teachers in the world. Not enough people care, even though they're great at what they do, so, so many of them. So just because you're doing something and you're doing it pretty well doesn't mean people give a damn, but people did. And so that's, that's how that started. Why is it lasted? Cause pe everybody, David West once said when he was in college at Xavier, you know, he talked about, he liked watching two old people argue when somebody said, why do you like this show? You're like 18 at the time. And I, we, were, we were like 40, 40 and 50. And David West talked about, it. he said, everybody watches sports with somebody they argue with like this. And that's the, that's it. That's, it's no mystery. That's the secret. There's, except there's no secret. Like who, 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 who that cares about sports doesn't passionately discuss it, engage in the discussion of it with somebody else. But it's, but it's, it's about chemistry and we all know. Yeah, that but everybody's got that chemistry with somebody. Right. Right. I mean, everybody's got that chemistry. People are, I, my brother says that he was my co-host before Tony and he was. <laughs> 
We've been doing this at our kitchen table since we were six to eight years old with my father sitting there mediating or not. So everybody has this and everybody has it with somebody with whom they have some chemistry or it wouldn't work. The conversations wouldn't go on for years and decades, right? They just wouldn't, but they do. And they go on when you hate the other person, when you love the other person, when the other person, you know, gets married or divorced or has children or doesn't or has tragedy, you still have people that you engage in this deep discussion with. And it's not like politics where it becomes awkward or, wow, we shouldn't talk about this because it's not polite. There's nothing polite about sports conversation and engagement, but it's okay. Everyone has a permission slip signed to talk about Given how good the Heat looked, wouldn't you get Embiid back into the Philly lineup for game three? You think after you trashed my boy, my friend, Dwayne yeah. Wade from the yeah. south side of Chicago, That's right. Hall of Famer, That's third right. best three guard, two guard in the history of the league. Okay. You think after you trashed him, yeah. moment after moment after moment, ghost of Dwayne Wade. You know, yeah, it's amazing how he could put his crutches down, yeah. you know, shoot the ball and pick his crutches up to limp Can back I tell you like something? Walter Brennan down the court. Because he That is a great reference Philly's for people butt. over 80, Walter yeah, Brennan. you. Um, so better people than you have trashed me. <laughs> Tosh trashed me on Twitter. Good. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by the Polina Market. And if you haven't been there, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meat since 1949, and it's only getting bigger and better. From the popular Wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections, Polina leads the way and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section. Everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meatloaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which is so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Polina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. Finally, we turn to Mark Gian Greco, the longtime Chicago television sportscaster who was dismissed from his job at ABC Channel 7 in late January. His departure was a controversy in itself, but our interview centered on some hilarious adventures, not the least of which involved a member of the 1985 Super Bowl Bears. The primary battleground for sports back then were those Bears Sunday night shows. Channel 7 had Walter Payton and Jim McMahon. Uh, Channel 2 had Mike Ditka. And we at Channel 5 had Steve Mongo McMichael, who was the scariest, craziest guy I've ever met. But a lot of people don't realize he's also one of the smartest, really introspective guys I've ever met. And, you know, part of that was an act, just like a pro wrestler. And, you know, after his career, he went into pro wrestling briefly. But those Sunday night shows were so outrageous. And, you know, I'll tell these stories now and, and people will, will just cringe. But back then, uh, he would bring props. He would think this thing out. After every Bear game, he'd go out and just get absolutely hammered. And he'd stumble down to the studio with his entourage, his wife, his mother-in-law, who had a filthier mouth than he did, you know, smoking butts and had a beer in her hand in the studio. And they'd bring all their friends. 
And, you know, Mongo would call his wife's friends her Kotex Mafia. <laughs> I remember that. And they would sit there as a studio audience. Yeah. And Mongo, like I said, had props. Now, one night he brought in a giant, you know, uh, hypodermic needle, this prop mm-hmm. from some weird game show, you know, with the collapsible needle. And he said, you know, I've been hanging out with you pretty closely. I'm going to have to give you an AIDS test. (laughs) And he stuck it in my neck and it looked like he put the needle right through my neck and ha ha ha. Oh, that was outrageous. That was crazy. Well, turns out the lead story on our newscast before sports Sunday, a woman died of AIDS contracting it from her dentist. Okay. So that was it. So they fired him and the general manager, if we back up a few years, came to me and said, hey, listen, why don't we hire Steve McMichael? He seems pretty crazy. And you can just control him. Well, I wasn't about to control him. I cut him loose. You know, I said, if you want the gorilla in the room, here you go. Mm -hmm. So we did all kinds of bits. He'd bring his little dog, Peppy, on the set with a spiked collar. He would bring other players on the set. Did he hit you with a pie or something once? He'd hit me in the face with a pie. He'd cut off my tie. (laughs) He got me in a headlock and almost rendered me unconscious. He smacked my head on the set. We we do all kinds of bits. Uh, I remember when the the airplane phone was a big technological advance, and they'd be playing a West Coast game against the Raiders or whatever, and he'd do the show on the phone from the chartered plane. And we did a cartoon. I drew a cartoon of him with his head sticking out of the plane, and he said, you better not be showing a picture of me with my head sticking out of the plane. <laughs> I'm like, no, man, I would never do that. And we'd go on and on with that. But uh, he'd bring in other players who would beat me up. He would, uh, you know, light things on fire. So the night they fired him for that comment, he went in the lobby of Channel 5. And it was a brand new NBC tower with this beautiful lobby and these huge murals of all these famous NBC broadcasters. He tore down every picture. And smashed everything in the lobby. He had a can of spray paint that he used to bring all the time. Gosh. And they had this beautiful, you know, etched logo of the peacock in a huge glass entranceway. He sprayed genitals on the peacock and then smashed <laughs> the window. So, and there were pictures of Jenny Jones and Jerry Springer uh, on the wall, tearing those down, oh gosh. along with John Chancellor and everybody else. So those were the wild days. But also, I remember taking my kids to Hallis Hall, and he came up to me and said, are these your kids? I said, yeah. And he said, I didn't even know you were married. He takes my boys, who were probably eight and six at the time, and my youngest one was way too small to make the trip. Um, he takes them in the locker room, gives them footballs, autographed jerseys, uh, sweatbands, headbands. And here's Richard Dent and a bunch of other guys smoking cigars, playing cards naked. But uh, <laughs> he, he was such a kind, introspective guy. We became great friends. Uh, he was one of the smartest guys I ever knew. We'd be up in Platteville at training camp. And uh, I'd be talking <laughs> to his wife who would show up. I mean, Deborah McMichael would show up you know, in a bikini sometimes in spandex. And she'd ride her bike up to me to my live shot location on top of the hill. And during calisthenics, he would turn and say, I see you with my wife. I'm going <laughs> to kick your ass. So it would just go on and on oh, and on gosh. like that. It was must-see television because people would 
first flip over to us to see what Mongo was going to do to me, then flip over to Channel 2. That means somebody has to go off the roster. Have you made it? Somebody will. No, I haven't, but I'll, but I'll make it by midweek. I'll let you know. Oh. I'll let you know firsthand. Let me know on the Dicta show, huh? Well, I hope so, because I'll try to get you before ABC, NBC. <laughs> okay. His hair curled in the front, and it looked like two water buffalo horns. <laughs> and his face was beet red. And one, I made fun of Mike on every single show. And my whole, the whole thing with me was, the guy's a football coach. He's not the pope. He's not the president. He's not a king. I mean, I couldn't believe how people worshipped him. And he even admitted it later on that he got so caught up in his fame that he was out of control. But I remember one night, we actually put a TV monitor on the set at NBC to watch CBS which was back then no one would ever think about doing that and mongo and i would make fun of ditka and poor johnny morris would try to bring ditka back on track and he goes hey you know oh hey welcome to uh, whatever and hey tough loss mike and he goes before we start talking about the game that mark and greco i'm never going to talk to him again i'm going to kick his ass <laughs> and, and johnny's like okay 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 enough you know you don't want to say the competitor's name on your air and those are the kind of things that we did. It was renegade Wild West TV. My thanks to David Kaplan, Mike Greenberg, Chuck Swirsky, Michael Wilbon, and Mark Jean Greco for those memorable stories. And of course, my thanks to TJ Rees for keeping this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his skills in making these episodes sound as good as they do, and T.T. Schinken for her great graphics. And thanks to our supportive sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market. Tune in next time for the start of season two of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. The new Super Beats Heart Shoes Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.